take and seal it, seal it for thy coat of blood. Heavenly Father, we uh, just come before you now and ask you by your spirit that you would help us to hear your word. Father, I thank you for your word. It truly is life to all who find it. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us to find your word today, that we would be attentive and stay alert and not let one word fall to the ground, for it is life to all who find it and health to all their flesh. Now, Father, help me to proclaim your truths. And Father, if I had to fail to do that, I ask that you forgive me. May your words proceed out of my mouth and may your people hear it with joyfulness and gladness. And Father, most of all, may you be glorified and honored in the teaching of your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you'd open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm actually going to be reading from the New King James Version this morning. You'll be able to follow me if you have the ESV I've, uh, I've graduated to the large print version, and I don't have an ESV Bible. That's large print. So, praise God. And when you find your place in Ephesians chapter 4, if you will stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Word of God reads as follows. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord one faith and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Move down to verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, having given themselves over to lewdness, to all works of all uncleanness, with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor with working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. And let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, Anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I could probably do about six or seven messages on this chapter, but I'm going to make them all into one here. Um, 
Paul intended that this letter be read in many places for the sake of instructing many churches. This actually could be called the epistle to the church, to the churches. And the churches that Paul founded were very, very important to them, to him. He loved the church. He loved the people. He loved to see, as God does, when, when the brethren, as Psalms 133 talk about how good and how pleasant it is when the brethren dwell together in unity and in love and in oneness. God is greatly glorified when we do that. Uh, e- Ephesians wasn't the only letter that Paul wrote about unity. He also wrote a letter to the Philippians in Philippians chapter um, 2. Verse 1, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ and any comfort from, my, from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, how? By being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the entrance of others. So you see what Paul is saying there, that we be in full accord in one mind and do nothing from selfish ambition, but consider each other more important than yourselves. That's unity. That's how the body of Christ works. That's the oneness, putting others before yourself. In 1 Corinthians, he wrote to the Corinthians, the church there in in, in chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And, of course, in the the Corinthian church, they were being split up and divided because some were for Apollos, and some were for Peter, and some were for Paul and Christ and stuff like that, and there was division There's nothing more beautiful than a church that's in unity, a church that is in love and understands and realizes that all of us are from diverse backgrounds and different personalities. We all are different. We all are sinners called out of darkness and into the light of God. And we have different backgrounds. We have different personalities. And in the body of Christ, we are one. That becomes one. We have one head. Jesus Christ. We are his body. We are to show the world out there what Jesus looks like. And when we're bickering and fighting and arguing and having divisions and gossip and all this, that shows them what God is like, and that's not what he's like. Amen? So today I want, I want to teach you about the importance of unity. It's very, very important. As I said earlier, God loves unity in his people. I mean, any, any father, any mother here this morning that has children, when your kids are all getting along, it's nice, it's, it's good, and it's pleasant. But when they're not, and they're divided, and they're bickering and battering and stuff like that, and, and you've got disunity in your, in your household, you know what it's like. Well, same thing with God in his house. He loves to see his children get along. Now, there is one who hates the unity of the body of Christ, and of course, that is Satan. He hates everything to do with God. He hates his children. He wants to divide them. He wants to bring division and, and uh, gossip and all this for the sole purpose to get you away from God and, and uh, to hurt him. And we've got to make sure that this morning we don't allow that to happen. I want you to read um, in John 17 when Jesus was doing his high priestly prayer. Listen to this in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is us right now, okay? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So when we're in in unity and oneness, the world will believe that Jesus is, um, is, in, is in us. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, and that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That was Jesus' prayer, that the people who would believe in him through their word would be one would be one in unity. 
Now, the letter to the Ephesians wasn't the only letter that they received. They also received a letter from Jesus, of course, in Revelation, right? Revelations chapter 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patience, your endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So this church was was knowledgeable in doctrine. They loved the word of God. They studied like the Bereans. And when, when, when false apostles would, would speak to them, they would study and listen to what they were saying, and they were able to judge that they were false. And God said, that's awesome. But he says, however, I have this against you. And we know what it is, right? You have abandoned the love you have at first. You, you, you've got so uh, overwhelmed with uh, the work of the Lord that you forgot about the Lord of the work. You got so busy with studying doctrine and, and, and knowing the truth, which we should, but they lost their first love, which was Jesus. And I'm telling you this, that when you, when you lose your love that you had at first with Christ, you eventually lose love for one another. Amen? I think this is a good time right now to bring in 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that whoever loves God must also love his brother. Love for God and neighbor are inseparable companions. You can't do one without the other. If you love God, you love your brethren. The body of Christ must be united and built up, not only to bring God God glory, but I want you to get this now, but also to be ready for the inevitable encounter with evil. I'm going to focus on one scripture here right now, and that is verse 27 in Ephesians chapter 4. Nor or neither give place, some of your translations might say opportunity, to the devil. The Apostle Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5.8 to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That word sober-minded has to do with being watchful. It has to do with to wake up, to watch out, and to pay attention Your adversary, which is your opponent, he prowls around. That word prowls around actually means to make due use of opportunities. He's looking for opportunities that you will give to him to destruct and destroy unity in the body of Christ, and not only the church, but in your marriage or in your family or whatever. He's looking, prowling around for opportunities to do his work. Then it says that he seeks, and that means to seek in order to find, to crave, to strive after. And like Peter said, it's like a roaring lion. If you've ever watched the animal planet or something like that, you see these lions just kind of going behind the bushes, and all these other animals are out there, and one kind of gets out on his own. And bam, he's devoured. This is the picture that Peter gives us about Satan. And Peter could write this because we know, of course, that he had a personal encounter with Satan himself, Right? Jesus said in Luke twenty two thirty one, Simon, Simon, <laughs> behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. That word demanded means to ask with permission. Just like Job, right? Satan had to ask for permission. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded you to ask for permission, to ask that one be given up to one from another power, to beg one from another, Jesus, give me Peter. Let me sift him like wheat. Let me have at him. And that word sift means to try one's faith to the verge of overthrow, to separate you from what is good, to separate separate you from one another, and to separate you ultimately from God. That is his desire. And, of course, God had allowed Satan to sift Peter, 
as he did Job. Now, Job was blameless and upright, but Peter was a little cocky and overconfident because he went on to say later in that verse that I am ready to go to prison and even to die for you, Jesus. He was confident in his faith. And Jesus went, Simon, Simon, you're not there yet. You're overconfident. You think you will, but let me tell you what will happen. And then, of course, he went in about denial. Satan hates the church and especially Christians who dwell together in unity and love for one another. And in verses 25 through 32 of Ephesians 4, these are deliberate attempts to destroy the unity of the body of Christ. Now, let's go back to verse 27. I really want to hit on this, so pay attention to this. Neither give place to the devil. This is a present imperative with a negative. And what this means is this. If Paul were not writing this, but was actually speaking this to the church at Ephesus, he would have been very upset, and he would have been using a very loud tone. He was mad. Matter of fact, the accurate translation of verse 27 is, Stop giving place to the devil. He was upset, and he was saying, I want you to stop it. I want you to stop it now. Stop giving place to the devil. And then you look at this word place here. In the Greek, it's the, it's the Greek word topos, T-O-P-A-S. Paul here is not speaking about something in the imagination or in the mind. Topos, it refers to a specific, specific marked off geographical location, as real as this back door to the sanctuary. So he's not talking about the imagination. Um, the devil must first find an entry point from which he can begin his campaign of unleashing his devilish destructions on our lives. So neither give place, topos, a geographical location. Remember, he's looking for opportunities to go in and release his devilish stuff. That's what he wants to do, and we have to be aware of that. One entry point that he uses to enter our lives is relationships. He will use relationships to bring about his destructions, amen? If there is any unresolved issue or an ugly conflict with the loved ones, a spouse, or even church members, these will be entry points where he will come in and ultimately destroy that. Let me read that again to you. If there is an unresolved issue, an ugly conflict with loved ones, maybe a spouse, or church members, these will be toposes, entry points to where the devil can come in and ultimately destroy that relationship or that church. Job chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Well, what do you think he's doing going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it? He's not trying to get exercise. He's seeking opportunities for people that are negligent and overconfident that will give him opportunities so that he could come in and destroy it. Then you look at this word devil. Of course, we, we use that as a name of the devil, and you can. But let me just tell you about this word here. It's, a, it's, it's a, uh, the Greek word diabolus, and it, it's a compound word of two words. The first part of the word is dia, which means through. It carries the idea of penetration, like taking a sharp object on one side and not just poking it, but poking it and getting inside of it and pushing it all the way through until you penetrate it. The second part of the word is balo, and it means to throw, like to throw a, 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 a hard or a sharp object. When you compound these two words together, dia and balo, you get diabolus, which has the, 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 in the mind of throwing accusations, throwing slanderous accusations between individuals and not stopping at it. See, he just doesn't do it once because we're too smart to realize well, that's got to be the devil, right? So he, he, he doesn't do it once. He does it over and over and over and over and over, and he bombards your mind. He bombards your mind. And what he's trying to do is throw these accusations and slanderous words about other people or about other church members or about your spouse or about your kids so that he can get in and fully penetrate the mind. That's what the word devil means, diabolus, penetrator. Satan knows that whoever controls your mind and emotions ultimately controls your life. 
He'll work on your emotions. He will bombard your feelings. I don't feel saved. I don't feel loved. I don't feel appreciated. I'm no good. I'm no good. I'm never going to succeed. You're always going to be like your dad. You're never going to be better than your sister. You're always going to be like this. Bam, bam, bombarding your mind until he has penetrated it. And, of course, we know that God knows the same thing. That's why he tells us in Romans chapter 12 to be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Whoever controls your mind and emotions will ultimately control your life. And God wants to control your life and your mind with his word. That's why we must be students of the word and study, meditate in it day and night. One writer writes that underestimating the enemy is a tactical error in battle that inevitably leads to a crushing defeat. Taking it for granted. I think one of the biggest things that Satan has, and we know that we have the victory, right? We know that in Christ we have the victory. But sometimes we can walk around and be confident. I've got this thing. I've got this sin. I've mastered it. I don't need to read right now. I can, I can just be lazy and overconfident and underestimate the enemy. When I was with the Padres, uh, we, ha- we had something called an advanced scout. And what that advanced scout would do, let's just say we were going to San Francisco and playing three games there, and then after that we're going to Atlanta. The advanced scout would not go to San Francisco with us. He would go to Atlanta because he was studying the Braves, and I'm not talking about just a starting lineup, but every hitter and every pitcher. And he would uh, relay back to us what they were doing, what they were hitting, what they were doing. I mean, every person. So that when we got there, we would study the opponent and they would learn how to pitch this hitter or how to do this and that. Because if you underestimate your enemy, more than likely you're going to fail and you're going to be defeated. And you shouldn't be defeated. Amen? Now let's look at... um, Satan here a little bit more closely. I want you to turn in your Bibles to um, Ezekiel chapter 28. And we're going to start in verse 12. Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 12. Son of man... Take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. So if you get this right now, Satan, who was Lucifer back then, looked like a giant piece of jewelry. You ever, you ever look at a, a, a diamond ring or when you're engaged just like that and, you know, you actually put a, a diamond ring just like under a regular light and you look at it, it's like, well, that doesn't look like much. But then you, you put the black uh, underground under it and you put it under these marvelous lights and all of a sudden that diamond begins to brighten itself and show all these different beauties. Well, this is how Lucifer was. He was covered with every precious jewel there was. So he looked like a giant piece of jewelry. Matter of fact, uh, Lucifer is the Hebrew word phosphorus, which means a collector of lights. A collector of lights. So in verse 13, the end here, it says that the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. So here's Lucifer, the anointed cherub who covers, the beautiful cherub. Now, I want you to notice something in this verse here. It says that they were prepared for you on the day you were created. You see, God and Satan are not on the same level. Satan was a created being. You understand that? He's not omnipotent like God. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He can't be every place at all times which is more likely he's probably never harassed any of us. I think there's only like a handful of people that Satan actually uh, fought with in the Bible. But he has this host of demons with him, and they do his dirty work. But this is how he started out. Now look at verse 14. You are the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God, and you walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created 
until iniquity was found in you. Now, a lot of people ask the question, you know, well, where did that evil come from? Well, good luck. If you, get, if you get an answer, let me know. I don't know. I don't know how this iniquity was found in him, if he was perfect and in the presence of God. But basically, Lucifer, with, with his covered uh, jewels, he would actually hover in the very presence of God. And when God's glory would go out from him, it would shine on Lucifer and reflect back to God, to God, and God was able to see his own glory, and it was beautiful. Phosphorus, a reflector of lights. But what was this iniquity that was found in him? If you'd go with me to Isaiah chapter 14, let's look at it over here. Isaiah 14. In verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. Here's his iniquity. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. There was his iniquity. He believed in his heart, and he began to say in his mind that I will be like God. I will be higher than God. I will be better than God. But the thing is, he didn't stop there. He began, and this amazes me, he began to bombard the minds of other angels. And angels that worship wingtip to wingtip for eons and eons of time, one by one, he began to penetrate their minds. And the Bible says that he took one-third of the angels with him. How powerful is that? Now, if he can do that, and separate and penetrate the minds of holy, mighty, powerful angels. Just think what he can do with people that are made of dirt. Just think what he could do with people who already have emotional flaws and wake up in bad moods. He's very, very good at what he does. He's very sly and cunning, and he doesn't stop. He will bombard you and bombard you, hopefully to penetrate you, and you better be aware of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, uh, the word says here, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. Do you understand that? Don't be cocky. Don't be overconfident. Don't think you got this. Don't think you can be lazy. Don't think that your marriage doesn't need work and doesn't need nurturing. Don't think you can just leave that alone and expect everything to be fine. You must, you must study your opponent. You must know how he works and what he does to protect the unity of the church. Now, remember when Adam was in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, God says to tend and keep the garden. He put Adam and Eve there, and he says, I want you to tend it and keep it. Well, that word keep actually means to protect or to guard against. Now, God's a master communicator. He surely had to have told Adam what to protect and guard it against from. Because he knew on the outside, roaring about like a roaring lion, sneaking around, trying to gain access into the garden. And he did through the serpent. I love our church. I am so thankful for this church. I'm thankful for each and every one of you. I'm thankful for our pastor, the leaders. I love this church. I love coming to church. But I'm going to tell you right now, church, outside, luring around, looking for an opportunity and access to get in here and divide and destroy Pacific Hope is Satan. And he's looking for an opportunity. Maybe somebody gets offended. Maybe somebody gets upset. Maybe there's a difference in a relationship and gossip begins to spread. And that will give him an entry point like this door and say, come right in and do whatever you want. 
And we've got to be able to close the door to that. That's not just Pastor John's job. That's your job. That's to make sure that you, you know, you're, you're forgiven, that you are, are, are dealing with each other's faults or stuff like that if you have something against somebody, right? That's your job. That's what the Bible says. Jesus said in John 14, 30, I will no longer talk, with, uh, talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. I have given him no entry point. I have given him no access. Every temptation that was thrown at me, I have pushed it aside. That's what we need to do. We need to be aware. We need to be alert and understand that he's looking for entry points, and we can't give him that. And later on in this, in this message, we're going to find out how we, use, how we do that. Amen? Now, I want you to go to Revelation chapter 3. And I want you to look at another church here. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1. This is the church of Sardis. The church of Sardis was a dead church. They were spiritually dead and full of inward decay. They were unbelievers playing church. In verse 1, And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive. Watch this now, but you are dead. Jesus knew this church. They were just playing church or whatever the situation was. But Jesus knew you think you're alive, but you're actually dead. Now watch this. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Now watch this. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, the city of Sardis, um, it, it, it was a city that was, was uh, built high, and, and there was a low va- valley below, and they were about 1,500 feet above the valley. They, it was set up upon stones and stuff like that. So this, this city was so up high that they became um, uh, prideful and arrogant and cocky. Since we're the Sardises, and, and our city is so high, that nobody will be ever, no enemy will ever be able to invade us because we're so high. So they just began to do nothing and become cocky and live life. What they forgot was over time, the earth below them began to shift and move. And because of that, below the city became little cracks because of the movement of the, of the earth. Well, over a period of years and stuff like that, those cracks became bigger and bigger and bigger without them ever even noticing it because they were the Sardises. Ah, nobody will ever invade us. Well, one night when they were sleeping, the cracks began, became so big that their enemies took advantage of that and snuck up through the cracks of the city, and when they woke up, they were overtaken. How did this happen? They refused to look at the cracks. Now, every single one of us in this room have cracks in our lives. That's not the problem. The problem is, what are you going to do about it? What do cracks represent? They they represent negligence. You understand that? Every failed marriage begins with little cracks. Just tiny little cracks. But because it's not dealt with and because it's too difficult to talk about or whatever, you just ignore it and sweep it under the rug, hoping that it will go away, and it doesn't. And the enemy takes that crack and bombards it and bombards it and makes it wider and wider until he ultimately comes in and destroys the marriage and now you have divorce. 
Every bankruptcy starts with little cracks because you can't say no and you don't know how to spend. You keep using the credit card. You get yourself further and further in debt until you're so far down that you can't come out. And you're paying thousands and thousands of dollars at that restaurant you ate at six years ago. We need to be careful. We need to sober up and be watchful and be mindful. Every church split up begins with little cracks. And because we don't deal with our issues or, or maybe some gossip or spread about this person or because somebody's angry that they didn't you know, get that promotion or something like that, that begins with little cracks. And you don't deal with it and they get bigger and bigger and Satan moves right in here and brings division. And you know, you've seen it. There are church split ups all over the world constantly. Don't let that happen to this church. Don't let it happen. Matthew chapter 18. You all know this very well. Let's read it again. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and gossip about him. Is that what it says? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And, of course, that means actually go in love. Go in humility and lowliness like Paul read in, in, in Ephesians 4 when I read earlier on. Hey, you know what? I'm offended. Uh, what you said or how you looked or whatever, whatever happened. You go to that person. And that's between you and him alone. Nobody else needs to know. Nobody else needs to be involved. Go to that person. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Great. You've closed the door. You've sealed the crack. And the enemy can't gain entrance point into that relationship or into that church. That's what we're supposed to do here. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then, of course, if he refuses to listen to them, then you tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, then you let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. How many of you really truly follow this commandment when somebody has ought against you or you have ought against somebody else? Do you go to that person? Or do you go to the phone and you tell the other person who has no idea or doesn't even need to know how angry you are at that person and what they've done? And more than likely, that person probably didn't even know they hurt you. But you just, you just let it go. You just, you just sleep on it. And we're going to read about this later, about going to bed angry. And you don't deal with it. And before you know it, bam, he's gained access. Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all. Now, sometimes that might not be the case. Sometimes people just don't want reconciliation, and of course the relationship splits up, and you can't do nothing about it. But as much as it depends on you, You are to live peaceable with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, then I want you to feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is what we're supposed to do. This is the, these are the types of things that we have to renew our minds with so that when the, the difficulties come and the trials come, we can remember to go back to this and to do everything to do this. Now, go back to Ephesians chapter 4. In your outline, I, I, just put, I put three here that I think are the most... Uh, most deadly, but all of them are, actually. These are ways that we give place to the devil. Through sinful anger, through gossip, and through unforgiveness. Verse 26, be angry. There's the command right there. Go ahead and be angry. 
What should we be angry at? We should be angry at sin. We should be angry at evil. We should be angry that the innocent got invaded. That's where our anger should be. But you all know that anger has a way of just moving right into uh, sinful tendencies. And it's our nature that when we become angry, our tendency is to sin. Our tendency is to revenge. We are an eye for an eye. But as we just read in, in, in Romans chapter 12, that we're not to do that. We're to live in harmony with one another. Sinful anger is self-defensive, self-serving, and it's all about self. It's undisciplined, it's vindictive, it's sinful, and it has no place even temporarily in the life of a Christian. James chapter 1, verse 20, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You want to know what sinful anger is? You want to know what, uh, what uh, be angry and do not sin is? Look at the story of Moses. Do you remember that? When he saw his brother getting beaten by the Egyptians, and he goes over there and takes care of matters his own way. He looks that way, and he looks that way, and makes sure nobody's seeing, he ends up killing the Egyptian. By the way, whenever you have to look one way and look the other way and make sure nobody's looking, that's probably a good hint that you shouldn't do it. <laughs> but he took matters into his own hands and he became angry and that anger fested in him to where it became sinful and he revenged the life of his brother and killed. And then, of course, God had to send him out in the, in the desert for 40 years to train him. Moses, this is not how we do it. This is not how we do things. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. This must be dealt with very quickly. If it's not dealt with and, you're, and that anger will become, a, it'll become a boiling rage in, in you, a deep-seated anger in you. And when you sleep on it, it just continues. You let it go for another day and it continues to get bigger and bigger. And that is the opportunity where Satan will come in. He destroys many marriages like that because you can't deal with it or you can't talk about it. Listen, you know, there, there are times where you just you know, can't come in agreement. Come to the church. Get, get help. Get counsel. Humble yourself. Listen, we can't agree on this. Can you help us? That's what the church is here for. How do we deal with it very quickly? We confess it. We forsake it. And we give it to God for cleansing before the end of the day. If anybody has done ought to you, you go to that person, you, you, you deal with it, you reconcile, and you do not go to bed angry. And we're all guilty of it. You know how it is. You don't talk for weeks. That person did this to me. They owe me an apology. And sometimes the other person, like I said, doesn't even know they did anything. But be very, very careful of anger. It's one letter short of danger. It's like a time bomb. You keep carrying it and carrying it. Matter of fact, I mean, I know of families where, where sons and dads don't even talk. It's been 50 years and they don't say a word to each other because of something that happened back when he was five or mothers and daughters, or, or whatever the case is. They've carried this thing for 40 years, and I don't even, they don't even talk to each other. That's sinful anger. In church, if anything like that were to come in here between one another, you cannot let it go. You must deal with it. You must be godly. You must be mature. You must humble yourself. You must pray and ask God to give you the words, but you know what? You deal with that. You go to that person, and you deal with it. And you do not go to bed until you know all is well. Amen? John Trapp rightly warned that anger may rush into a wise man's bosom, but should not rest there. That's not the problem that anger got in, okay? That, you know, certain things cause us anger. The, the thing is, what do we do about it? How do we deal with it? That's the issue here. Be angry. That's the command. Go ahead, be angry. But just don't go to bed angry. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath and do not give place to the Diabolus. 
fifth pound. I can't believe he did that to me. I can't believe he did that to me. He deserves this. And he pounds and penetrates your mind. And then you look for revenge like Moses and ultimately kill the person. Spurgeon said, speaking of unrighteous anger, he said that anger is temporary insanity. I have no more right as a Christian to allow a bad temper to dwell in me than I have to allow the devil himself to dwell there. This was actually, I didn't put it up here, this was actually in the Associated Press. Um, Don Nutt, a, a man in uh, Houston, Texas, said that he and his wife had been married for 50 years. He says that the secret is that they never went to bed without settling any differences between them. Then he went on to say, but Don can see that there have been times when he went 10 days without sleep. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, that that's, that's, that's a good thing to do if you're married or, 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 or whatever, that you would make a, a, a pledge to each other. You know what? We're not going to let the sun go down our anger. We're not going to give the devil any opportunity or any room to come in and destroy this marriage and ultimately destroy our kids because I've seen it happen. That's why God says, I hate divorce. He sees the scars and the wounds that it does to the children. The next one here is down in verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. If you notice that corrupt words go hand in hand with grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Gossip is a sin that grieves the Spirit of God. The Greek word for unwholesome talk has to do with something that stinks or something that is rotten. When you go to the stores and you look at this luscious fruit and all of a sudden you see this big bruise on the apple, whatever like that, I guarantee you don't pick that because it's nasty, it stinks, it's, it's bad, it's soft. That's what this, this word unwholesome talk means. Um, Gossip would include talking about other people's business and things that do not concern you. Repeating what someone else said, even though you don't know if it's true or not. These are forms of gossip. That should not be listed amongst Christians. Talking about other people's business when they don't concern you and repeating what someone else said, even though you don't know it's true or not. It's deadly poison that hurts people. Gossip will hurt and kill people. It kills relationships. Proverbs 18.8 says that the word of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. The Greek word for gossip actually means to whisper. So Proverbs chapter 18 says that the whisperer, the gossiper, boy, that's like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. And since the Greek word for gossip means to whisper, this means that it almost always takes place in secret. In secret. So the other person can't hear. If anybody ever comes to you and talks to you about someone else, please be bold and courageous to say, stop. I don't want to hear it. That's a sin also, listening to gossip. Have you gone to that person? Well, no. Go. That's how we live. That's how Christians are supposed to be. Here's a good rule to live by. If you cannot say it publicly, then don't say it at all. How about Matthew chapter 12? Listen to this, verse 36 and 37. But I say to you that for every idle word man may speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. How many of you believe that? I say to you that every idle word a man speaks, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. Now, if we know this to be true, do you think we ought to watch what we speak? Watch what we say? Gossip is evil. That is the devil speaking right through that person, ultimately to hurt that person and kill him. That's what gossip does. And that should not even be mentioned in this church. You close the door to that. You go to that person. Matter of fact, uh, go to James real quick. 
Look what James has to say about it, and we're going to close here. James chapter 1, uh, excuse me, James chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. But no man can tame the tongue. It is, an, it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing, and my brethren, these things ought not be so. You shouldn't do it. With the mouth, we worship our God, and with the mouth, we kill the person who was created in his very image and also as a child of God. Brethren, sisters, this ought not be so. This should not take place. Matter of fact, James chapter 1, verse 26 says, If anyone among you thinks that he is religious, you think you're religious? Here's how you can tell. If anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. If you think you're religious and yet you're a gossiper and you spread nasty things about other people and you have unwholesome talk and rude talk and foul language coming out of your mouth, uh, he goes on to say, but deceives his own heart. You're deceived, he's saying, because the tongue will tell on the heart, won't it? Matter of fact, the tongue only speaks and does what the heart tells it to do. So when you're speaking these types of languages and using these types of words, that's evidence that you've got a bad heart. And the issue is really not the tongue, it's the heart. You need to deal with the heart. You need to deal with the person. You deal with that person, you clean it up, you watch the words that come out of your mouth. Last one is unforgiveness. Of course, all these lead up to unforgiveness. Be kind to one another, verse 32, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Wow. Hey, let me ask you a question here. Have you ever, a Christian, have you ever asked God to forgive you and he told you no? Has anybody in here experienced that? God, would you please forgive me? And he said no. I remember... Uh, when I was a children's pastor, we were playing uh, team ball or dodgeball, and they were all standing up against the wall, and I would take the ball and chuck it at them and hit them, and they would be out. Well, I meant to hit this little boy, and I accidentally hit this little girl. And it was a little Nerf ball, so it didn't hurt. But she began to cry so, I mean, she was sobbing. I went up there, and I said, oh, honey, I said, I'm so sorry. She, I think she was like four. I said, honey, I am so sorry. Will you please forgive me? And she went, no. That, but that's how we are. And she wasn't hurt. She was just mad because she got out of the game. And I let her stay. But that's how, but, yeah. That's how we are, huh? When somebody does something to us, no. You've hurt me. You violated me. Or whatever the situation would be. No, I won't forgive you. As a Christian, When you fail to forgive someone else, you set yourself up as a higher court than God, and that is idolatry. You are worshiping yourself rather than God. Who are you if you have been forgiven? You can go right over to Matthew 18 on this, right? Who are you to to be able to determine whether you forgive someone or not? when we have been forgiven such a great debt that we would never, ever, ever be able to repay, we go out like the other guy and put our hands around the neck who owes us just a little bit, who's done something to us, and we throw them in prison until they can repay. That's not how we do it. 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Hey, how did Christ walk? Do you remember how Christ walked on Luke 23, 34? Let me, re- let me remind you how he walked. As he's being nailed to the cross, as he's, as he's taking the punishment of God for our sins, and he didn't deserve it, he was sinless, he looks out and he prays to the Father and says what? Lord, kill him? Just destroy them? Father, what? 
Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He did what Romans 12 says. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. He totally entrusted that to God. If somebody's done something to you, somebody's hurt you, which is going to happen, give it to God. Confess that. Give it to God. Lord, I'm hurt. I'm, I'm, I'm sad. I'm angry. I want to do this and that, but I'm giving it to you, and I'm trusting you. Work it out and stuff like that. But don't hold unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart. How do we do all this? Mark read early in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, which means this. It's going to take strength that you don't have. You don't have the strength to forgive. You don't have the strength to go to bed and not be angry. You don't have the strength to control your tongue. He does. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. MacArthur said that basic to the effective Christian life is preparation. The unprepared believer becomes the defeated believer who seeks to serve the Lord in his own wisdom and own power. I'm here to tell you today right now that if you think you can fight the devil in your own strength, you are desperately wrong. He will chew you up and spit you out. He's very, very powerful. And I'm amazed at these people today that call the devil a punk and, and a sissy and take that. So like that. They have no idea what they're doing. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever tell us to go out and pick a fight with Satan. We are to remain steadfast. We are to remain standing and be firm against his onslaughts. And how we do that is by trusting in God. And the main thing here, you know, we kind of forget about it, about putting on the whole armor of God. But if you look in Ephesians 6, 18, here's the real key. Praying always with all prayer and supplications in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplications for all of the saints. How's your prayer life? Prayer is the very spiritual air that the soldier of Christ breathes. It is the all-pervasive strategy in which warfare is fought. And you are never going to win the spiritual battle unless you get ready and prepared for it. And how you get ready and prepare for it is that you humble yourselves and you cry and pray out and pray to God and ask Him for the strength to deal with this person, to deal with this attitude, to deal with this personality. Lord, pour your love in me. Do whatever you can. That's how we do it. Amen? Let's pray. Our holy and gracious Father, oh Lord, we are in desperate need of your strength and of your power and of your love. Lord, I'm glad that you're mindful that we are made of dirt and we don't have it all together but you do, God. Father, would you help us as the Church of Pacific Hope? Would you help the marriages? Would you help the families in this church to close the door and seal every crack that is in their life so that Satan would not gain an opportunity to go in and destroy it? Would you show them where the cracks are? Would you show them what they haven't dealt with And Father, would you give them the love? Would you give them the humility and meekness that they would put one another before one another and and talk about it? Lord, I love this church, and I know that you do. It is your church, God. And would you help your people to get along, to love one another, to come into church with unity and love and oneness and worship our Creator and our God? But, Father, as Paul told the Ephesians, he tells us that we can only do this in your strength and in your might. So I'm asking, Father, for an abundance of strength and might for your people, for an abundance of love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness and gentleness and meekness so that we would be able to show the world who our God truly is. Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, thank you for the help. Thank you for teaching us. We love you and we honor you. 
Continue to bless this church, Lord. Bless Pastor John as he's down at the conference. Father, open his eyes and continue to pour wisdom in him. We pray for safe travel mercies for him on the way back. And we just pray for continual blessings upon this church that whatever your will and plans is for this church, Father, that we would uh, just walk in alignment to that. Father, thank you for our brothers and sisters here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.